0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Chael English Ministry in Sydney. We believe that God speaks through His Word, the Bible. We pray that as you listen, you will hear God's voice and be moved to worship His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your great love for us. And we thank You that out of Your love for us, that You have given to us Your Word, Lord, we believe that all of your word is your word. Lord, we believe that the whole Bible is inspired by you and that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. Our Father, we pray that you would help us now to concentrate. Help us, Lord, to work hard together to understand what this passage is saying and what it means for our lives today. Lord, please thrill us anew, as we learn new things from your word, and as we learn more of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow in our gratitude for Jesus today. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Sin. Sin, how much sin do you think has been committed in human history? It's a weird question, I know, but think about it. How much sin do you think has been ever committed in the history of mankind? How many times in human history do you reckon people have ignored or disobeyed God? Well, how many people have ever lived? Right now, currently, 2021, there are approximately around 8 billion people in the world. Google tells me that in human history, there has been around 100 billion people to to live, 100 billion people, each one of them sinning ever since birth. So you've got to keep up with this, right? This is is basic maths, not that basic. This is thousands upon thousands of sins committed by billions upon billions of people with thousands of millions of sins being added each new day, 24-7, around the clock. That's a heck of a lot of sin, don't you think? This world that we live in has seen an incredible amount of sin and it's shaped everything. Every person that's ever lived, shaped by sin, by their own sin, by the sin of others, the nations that we live in, the cultures that we enjoy, the lives that we have, everything about our world has been infiltrated and marred by the reality of sin. Sin has infected everything. Sin brings death and decay to everything on this world. Sin is a massive weight upon our world. And yet, according to the book of Romans, The problem of sin for us Christians has been solved. We've been pardoned for our sin. The price of sin has been paid and we have been declared right with God. In the words of Paul, we have been declared justified, right standing with God. How? By the death of one man on a cross, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, in your Bible, turn back a page and go with me to Romans chapter 3. Turn back a page and go to Romans chapter three, verse 23 to 25. And that is the greatest noise I can hear in the world, the the sound of turning pages. Oh, it's glorious. Romans chapter three, verse 23 to 25. And I think this is a great summary of what we've learned in Romans so far. Chapter three, verse 23 to 25, look with me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. One man, Jesus, has died as a sacrifice for all of us. Now, according to this passage, when we rely on Jesus for forgiveness, we are redeemed, we're justified, all of our sin pardoned, All our sin, past, present, and future, forgiven. It's dealt with. It's done. We now share in what the Bible calls eternal life. Life evermore. Flip over with me to Romans chapter five, verse one and two. Romans chapter five, verse one and two, and we looked at this last week. Romans chapter five, verse one and two, Paul says this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice, we boast, we confidently exult in the hope of the glory of God. And that's the great news of Romans chapter 1 to 5. Chapter 1 to 5 is summarized really in those two verses uh, starting in chapter 5. And that's the great news that Paul has taught us so far. He's saying the reign of sin has ended. The plague of sin has been solved. The problem has been dealt with. We are now justified. Because we are, we can now rejoice. We can boast in this sure hope of eternal life, a future without sin and a future with God and his people delighting forever. That is awesome. That should bring a smile to your face. It's amazing. What a crazy thing, if you're a sinner and you get this, it changes everything, this is amazing. What an awesome thing that God has done for us in love. Think about it, think about sin, the reality of sin. Sin has had a massive impact on humanity. There must have been what? Trillions upon trillions upon trillions of sin. And yet, the Bible says clearly that the death of one man on a cross solves all of it. It fixes the problem of sin. One man, one Jewish dude from the town of Nazareth, more than 2,000 years ago, on the other side of the world, literally, one out of the 100 billion people to ever live. That's pretty wild when you think about it. It's a big call. I think it's a pretty big claim to make that one person at some stage in human history, did something to solve the sins of 100 billion people. It's a pretty big claim to make. So I wanna ask you today, how can the death of one man justify so many people? That's the question. The question I want us to think about today, how can the death of one man justify so many people? I mean, you would think, logically, that the death of one man would pay for the sin of one man, right? That kind of makes sense. So how does the death of one man deal with the sins of many people? Billions of people, a total of trillions and trillions of sins. How does that work? Now, I don't know if it's a question you ever thought about. Maybe, maybe not. But when you start to think about it, it's actually a bit of a worry. Because it makes me ask the question how does Jesus cover my sin? I mean, what if his death way back then, way over there, doesn't reach all the way to Concord in 2021? What if his death doesn't reach sins as bad as my sins? Can I really be so confident? Can I really boast? Can I really rejoice in the sure hope of God's glory that one man 2,000 years ago died on a cross, and now me, all this time later, other side of the world, here in Sydney, that all my sin is gonna be dealt with? How can the death of one man have such far-reaching impact? That's the question, and that's the point that Paul deals with in the second half of Romans chapter five. And what Paul does here is he makes a comparison, a very simple comparison. Paul says that Jesus is a little bit like Adam. Nod your head if you know Adam, Adam, the first man, the first man that human created. So Paul makes a very simple comparison. He says, Jesus is kind of like Adam. He's a bit like Adam in the fact that what one man did at one point in time has a far-reaching impact. Think about Adam. Adam is one man at one point in time who changed history for all people because of his sin. Fast forward, you get Jesus, and here we have Jesus, who is one man who can change the future for all people because of one thing he did. The one impacts the many, and that's the point of his comparison in the second half of chapter five, this simple comparison. But the thing is, when you think about this comparison, it's very risky. This comparison, it's a risky comparison because it's open to all kinds of different misunderstandings. There are lots of ways in which Jesus is nothing like Adam, if you think about it. If you know who Jesus is, you know he's nothing like Adam. There are lots of ways, in, in fact, Jesus is actually the complete opposite of Adam. They're nothing alike. So Paul wants to make all kinds of qualifications about his comparison. Paul wants to make sure that his hearers don't misinterpret and misunderstand what he's trying to say. But the thing is, as Paul gives qualification after qualification after qualification, this passage gets more and more and more complicated. It gets more and more and more difficult to follow. In fact, this passage gets so difficult that ever since Paul wrote this, everyone have been arguing about what on earth he meant. It's, everyone's really confused. The details are quite obscure. If you read this throughout the week, you'll agree with me. This is not very straightforward, friends. We're gonna have to work hard for the next couple of minutes in order to follow this passage. But remember, if you're a dummy like me and you can't really focus too hard, just remember this. This is about A comparison. That's what this is about, a comparison. That's the important thing for us to get. Okay, with that said, let's get in there. Let's have a look. In verse 12, Paul starts to make this comparison. Paul starts to make this comparison and he begins with the Adam side of the equation. He reminds us of the profound and far-reaching impact of Adam's sin. The far-reaching effect of Adam's sin. Remember Adam's sin? God's like, don't eat this. And he eats it, disobeys, Since way back at the beginning of the Bible, God makes Adam and Eve, they're the first people God ever created. And as we saw in our first reading, God puts them in the Garden of Eden. Everything is good. Everything is perfect. There's no sin. There's no suffering. There's no pain. Nothing's wrong. They can do whatever they want. They can eat whatever they want. There's just one restriction don't eat from that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because you eat from that tree, you will certainly die. But you know how the story goes. Sad times, Adam disobeys. He sins. He's told not to eat, but he eats. He eats from that tree, and therefore, death comes into the world. They're thrown out of the Garden of Eden, and all of creation is now tainted and marred by sin and the effect of sin, which is death. That's where Paul starts. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul begins his comparison with Adam. He says, Adam sinned, and that brought sin and death and decay into all of creation. But it goes a little bit further. Paul says, it's more than just that sin came into the world. Paul says, Adam actually brought death to everyone because somehow all of us are caught up in Adam's sin. Somehow, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. He represents us in that way. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin and in this way death came to all people because all sinned that's the first half of the comparison adam's sin has far-reaching consequences adam's sin has led to death for everyone there's the first half of the comparison paul's about to bring in the second half He's about to go to Jesus and talk about how uh, Jesus did one thing that has far-reaching impact. His death on the cross secures our justification. There's consequence to what Jesus did. He's about to go to the other side of the argument, the comparison. But in the middle, in the middle of his sentence, he stops. Paul stops because Paul thinks of an objection to what he's just said. Like any other good teacher, he's preempting questions. And he's preempting people might have objections. Now, to be honest, it's a little bit difficult to understand exactly what the objection here is. We're not told. It seems to be something about sin being different before the law of Moses, like before the Ten Commandments and so on, but after the time of Adam. You've got to remember this is history we're dealing with. The thought behind it goes something like this. When Adam sinned, it was pretty clear. Why? Because God explicitly said, don't do this, and then he does this. So Adam broke a commandment, therefore he sinned. When Adam sinned, it was very clear, and we know that he sinned because he specifically disobeyed a command from God. Fast forward, it's the same thing for after the law of Moses, Ten Commandments and so on. There are specific commands that God has given, which gives light to sin. There are specific commands to be disobeyed, if that makes sense. In between the time of Moses and the law and Adam what happened in that in-between time. The reasoning goes something like this. In that in-between time, there is no direct command of God to disobey. So did they really sin? Does that make sense? If there was nothing to disobey, are they really in sin? And so the argument seems to go like this. The objection might be something like, sin can't be taken into account in that era in the same way. Sin is a very different thing for the people that lived in between the time of Adam and Moses. Now, Paul seems to think that some of his readers will have some kind of a question or an objection about that, about the people living in between Adam and Moses, because of their sin somehow being different to other people's sin in human history. Maybe the reasoning was, maybe their sin can't be held accountable in the same way, because they didn't disobey an explicit commandment that was written down. I'm not exactly sure what the objection is. Maybe it's the people uh, in between the time of Adam. Maybe they didn't sin. Maybe that was the objection. Or maybe they didn't deserve to die or something like that. But whatever the objection is, Paul brushes it aside. He says, look, sin was always in the world even before the law of Moses. That's his point. Paul says, it's true. Yes, sin is not taken into account in quite the same way There's no specific disobedience against a specific command of God, like with Adam or with people after Moses and his law, but sin, it was still there. Sin was still there in the world because of what Adam did. Look with me at verse 13. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Does that make sense? He's talking about an era thing, okay? Sin is a different thing in between the time of Adam and Moses. There's a sense in which sin is not taken into account in quite the same way. But Paul says, ultimately, it makes no difference. That's what it says. Ultimately, it's the same thing. Sin was still there, and Paul goes on to say, people still died, right? That's evidence of sin. People still died. Death still reigned even after people, Adam, and even before people, Moses and the law. Death still reigned even for people who didn't Uh, disobey an explicit command from God like Adam did. Look with me at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam. Okay. A little bit complicated, but the point is this. Adam's sin has brought death to everyone. That's the point. Everyone since Adam has been profoundly impacted on by the first sin, by that first sin. Now, death is in God's good creation when it wasn't meant to be. It's true. Before the time of Moses and his law, it's even more true after that. That's what he's saying. We're somehow united to Adam in his sin, and as a result, we're all gonna die. As a result of Adam's sin, we're all going to die. Every single person in this room, there'll be a funeral for you. That's truth. We are going to die. What Adam did has a profound impact on the rest of humanity. And so, Paul comes back to his point. He comes back to this comparison that he wants to make. Adam's sin has consequences for everyone. Adam's sin has changed the future for all people. And in that sense, Paul says... He's just like Jesus. In that sense, he's just like Jesus. Adam is a type, he's a model, he's a pattern of Jesus. Look with me at verse 14 again, towards the end. As did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But again, at this point, Paul stops. He's about to make this comparison between Adam and Jesus, but if you think about it, it's a pretty risky comparison, like we said before. He's about to say, yeah, Jesus is just like the guy who sinned and brought death to the world. That's what it's like. So it's a crazy thing to say. It's pretty dangerous, to say the least. There are a few things that Paul needs to get straight before he runs that comparison. And so for the next few verses, this is what Paul does. Before Paul shows a comparison of Adam and Jesus, before he shows how they're similar, he wants to make it crystal clear how they're different. Does that make sense? He wants to show the contrast before he shows a similarity. So now what Paul does is he's going to go and show some very clear contrasts between, uh, between Jesus and Adam. All right, I've got an illustration for you because you need a break. It's a bit of a silly illustration. Imagine if I met an American friend. I met an American person who has never seen a platypus in their life. A platypus. A platypus. platypus. There's photos, a platypus, platypus. Would you believe me if I told you I took these photos myself? Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> platypus. So, my American friend, who's never seen a platypus in his life, says, what in the world is a platypus? And so, me, being a helpful Aussie, I try to explain it to him by using a comparison. It's just like me saying to my American friend, a platypus is like a beaver. It's a furry animal that lives in water and spends a lot of its time swimming. But then, if I say that, I need to make all kinds of qualifications, don't I? Because the truth is, a platypus is not a beaver. That's the truth. I've got to say, they're very similar, but, brother, they're very different as well. I've got to say that a platypus has a very different face from a beaver. It's got a bill, like a duck. I've got to say, a platypus is not even a mammal like a beaver is. It's a monotreme, it lays eggs. I've got to say that a platypus lives in burrows. It doesn't build those nice nests that beavers live in. I've got to say that platypus live in Australia, beavers live in America, things like that, so on and so forth. But that's the point I'm trying to make. There's a comparison. Paul's trying to make a comparison. Friends, see, I can make the comparison, and the comparison is helpful to some extent. It's valid. But I need to clarify. I need to qualify what I'm trying to say. Paul's doing the same thing. It will be helpful to compare Jesus with Adam, but before he does, he needs to make all these qualifications because there are lots of contrasts between Jesus and Adam. Let's dive right back in, verse 15. The first contrast is there in verse 15. In verse 15, we need to realize that what Jesus did is way more powerful and effective than what Adam did. That's the first contrast. This is another how much more argument, like we looked at last week. Only this time, we're going from the little thing to the big thing. We're going from little thing, Adam, to the big thing, Jesus. It's a how much more argument. Paul says, if the little one, Adam, if what he did is capable of affecting many people, well, with Jesus, the big thing, it's going to be capable of overflowing to many people because it's way bigger and way better than Adam was. So if you think Adam's sin can bring death to everyone, well, what Jesus did can overflow to people. Look with me at verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? How much more? Okay, that's the first contrast. He's saying Jesus is way bigger and way better than Adam. In verse 16, there's another contrast. We need to remember that Jesus and Adam are actually the complete opposite of each other. Adam disobeys God, he sins, and his sin brings condemnation to the whole world. Jesus is opposite, he's an absolute reversal of that. Jesus is righteous, he fully obeys God. He's a total reversal of Adam's sin. He's a bigger and better Adam, but more than that, he can reverse Adam's curse. Look with me at verse 16. Verse 16 reads this. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. So there's two contrasts. The third contrast is found in verse 17. Adam's sin means that death reigns over us. In other words, death is our master. In other words, death rules. We are all slaves of death. But God's gracious gift in Jesus is bigger and better and more powerful. This is another how much more argument. It's gonna mean, surely, how much more God loves us, the complete opposite direction of that. How much more will you and I, if we trust in Jesus, end up reigning in life? Royalty. It's a language of royalty. Again, Jesus is greater than Adam. Jesus is a complete reversal of Adam. And so we go from being slaves of death to being kings of eternal life. Look with me at verse 17. For if, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? See where we're going so far? That's the direction he's going. We've got to follow his logic. Paul wants to make this comparison, but he's making qualifications. Adam is a type of Jesus, but don't get it twisted. Adam is way less powerful than Jesus. He's way less than Jesus. He's actually the complete opposite of Jesus. Having said all of that, there's still this very important comparison to be made. What Adam did has far reaching consequences, and what Jesus did has far reaching consequences. In both cases, one man who does one thing that changes the course of humanity. So here it is, verse 18. If I've lost you, come back now. Verse 18, because here we finally get to the comparison. This is a climax. Verse 18. Adam's sin has brought death to us all. Now, Jesus' sacrifice can bring life to us all. Look at verse 18 and just look at this contrast. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. See the comparison? It's awesome. In verse 19, it's there again. It's just said in a bit of a different way. Just like Adam's sin has made many people sinners, Jesus' death makes many people righteous. Look with me at verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Friends, do you get it? This is crazy. It's amazing. It's pretty simple, but once you clear your way through all the qualifications and all the objections, it's as simple as this. The one impacts the many. That's what it's on about. The one impacts the many. A few more verses to look at. In verse 20, there's another quick comment on the law of Moses. Moses. Paul is always having a dig at the law, we're going to get a lot more into his digs in chapter 6 and chapter 7, but here Paul's just reminding us again that God's law cannot save anyone, it can't save people. You're not going to be saved by obeying the Ten Commandments, it doesn't reverse Adam's sin. In fact, all it does is, it takes Adam's sin for the people in between the time of Adam and Moses, and it turns their sin into specific, contumacious disobedience before God. Now, they're actually disobeying a specific command that God has given them. It doesn't reverse Adam's sin. It actually increases the trespass. Look with me at verse 20. The first sentence of verse 20. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Meaning, it's actually harder for Jesus to die for people since the law because now we've knowingly disobeyed God. But even with our increased trespass, praise God that He still loves us. And through Jesus, the reign of sin and death has ended. So now, there's a new reign. There's a new reign. Adam brought in the reign of death, but in Jesus, God's grace, it abounds. It actually super abounds. That's what it says. The reign of God's grace comes in. It overwhelms and it overcomes sin and death. And now everyone who trusts in Jesus can surely and certainly know for sure that they have eternal life. Look with me at verse 20 and 21. 20b. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God, right? Praise the Lord for this truth. Friends, it's a bit complex, but you get the big idea? Jesus is like Adam, but... He's much bigger and much better than Adam. He's actually the complete reversal of Adam. But Jesus is like Adam in the sense that he is one man who impacts many people. Adam's sin affects everyone, and in somewhat of a comparable way, Jesus' death affects everyone who trusts in him. So, let's come back to the question that I asked you earlier. How can the death of one man on a cross Mean that the sins of many people can be forgiven? How can the effect of Jesus' death way back then, way over there, reach you and me in 2021 here in Sydney? How can the death of Jesus reverse the effects of the trillions and trillions of sins that have been committed in this world? Did you know the answer when I first asked you? Do you know the answer now? And how does it work? It works in a manner that is comparable to what happened with Adam. In the case of Adam, the sin of one man brought death to all people. Now with Jesus, his righteousness and his one act of dying for our sin on the cross and coming back from the dead, that has brought life to all people. The effects of Adam's sin, they managed to reach Sydney, right? You and I, we we look around, we can clearly see the effect of death all around us. Death is a very normal and expected part of the human experience. We can clearly see evidence for Adam's sin. Paul's trying to say that in a similar way, the effect of Jesus' death can reach you and me. And the argument is in a way more powerful way. Jesus is like Adam. He is the one who can change the future for everyone, everyone that trusts in him, in fact, Jesus is way bigger and way better than Adam. Jesus has won total victory for us over sin and death. He has magnificently reversed the destructive effects of Adam's sin and the curse of sin on this world. And so now there is absolutely nothing that can stop Jesus from saving his people. That's his point. Those of us who trust in Jesus are justified. That's his point. We do have Peace with God, he's not kidding. We can rejoice, we can boast in the sure hope of the glory of God. This is an awesome comparison. I wonder if it's a comparison you thought about before. But when you do think about it, it's awesome, it's brilliant. The the fact that Adam is a type of Jesus, but the fact that Jesus is way bigger and better and more powerful than Adam and, and his righteous act, it absolutely reverses what Adam did when he messed up in the garden. Friends, what we see here in verse 12 to 21, it gives you and me all the more reason why on our deathbeds we can lie there and just be completely confident. Be completely at ease. Because this God, He has saved us and He will save us. It's a done deal. Friends, because the second half of chapter 5 is true, you and I can lie on our deathbeds and we can rejoice we can be fully confident that where we're headed is to God's arms. We know that Jesus' death is enough. We don't have to worry that it doesn't apply to us because it does apply to us. We don't have to worry that we're too far away. You don't have to worry that your sin might be too bad for Jesus to forgive. That's what it means. As sure as you're a sinner through Adam, you are justified through Jesus. Did you catch that? That's his main point. As sure as you're a sinner through Adam, you can be justified through Jesus. Our salvation is as certain as our death. Our salvation is as certain as our death. So if you question your salvation, the application is stop it, stop. Stop questioning it because it's not about you. Stop questioning it because God's word is true. Because God is way more faithful than you can ever imagine him to be. When you sin, not if you sin, when you sin and you doubt your salvation, you're like, am I really a Christian? Don't listen to the lies of Satan. Instead, trust in the promises of God's word. You're a Christian because God says you are, not because you feel like it. As sure as you and I are gonna die through Adam, you and I are gonna be saved through Jesus. It's a powerful truth. I wonder if you've ever heard that saying, Uh, There are only two certainties in life, death and taxes. (laughs) Uh, I don't know, maybe you don't know that saying, but it's a profound saying. There are only two certainties in life, death and taxes. Well, I read somewhere that a few years ago, lawyers got together and they proved that tax is actually not a certainty in life anymore. But church, you know what? There are still only two certainties in life, death and salvation. Death and salvation. Salvation. If we are depending on Jesus, then our salvation is just as certain as our death. In fact, because Jesus is way bigger and way better than Adam, we can be even more certain of our salvation than we can be sure that we will die. Does that make sense? So if you know you're gonna die, take that, multiply it by a billion, that's how much confidence you can have in the resurrection. That's how much confidence you can have in your salvation. God will save you because... Jesus is the better Adam because he's the reversal of Adam. Friends, that's the message of the second half of Romans chapter 5. And I hope uh, that in all the complexity that you haven't missed the simple and the thrilling point that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter where you're at in your life or faith right now, Jesus has done what is necessary and what is enough to take you and save you. That's the point. Who God gives into Jesus' hands, what does he say? He will never let go. He will never lose them. They will for sure be raised on the last day. So if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, become one. Follow him today while you still have breath in your lungs. If you are a follower of Jesus, give thanks. Be thankful today, tomorrow. In fact, make time every day to be thankful. When you meet with your life group, remind them to be thankful because of our sure hope in God's salvation. Friends, what Jesus has done, it super abounds compared to what Adam has done. You and I can be more sure of our salvation than of our death, which is coming for sure. Friends, it'll be interesting if I visited your deathbed or you visited me on my deathbed, and we're about to die, and we say, well, I know that I'm gonna be saved. I don't know exactly when I'm gonna die, But I know this for sure, I am saved and I will be saved because Jesus is the way better Adam. That'd be an awesome thing. And that's the message of Romans chapter five. We can be absolutely confident. It's awesome news. Praise God with your life. Let's pray. Our heavenly father, we Thank you and we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus is the one great and glorious man who has completely reversed and completely overcome the effects of the sin of Adam and that he is the one man who can now bring life, eternal life, to everyone who believes. Father, we pray for those of us who don't yet trust in Jesus, Lord, please help them to put their trust in Jesus. Father, we pray for all of us. Please help us to depend on Jesus through the good times and the bad times. Father, please give us the confidence and joy and the assurance knowing that our sin is forgiven and that we will be in glory with you forever. Lord, as we live our lives yearning for your coming kingdom, help us, Lord, to live faithfully bringing you much honour and glory. And Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.